For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. When you're praying, assuming you pray, if you're the type of person who prays, when you pray, do you ever sit and wonder, what is the point of this? Does that thought ever find its creepy way into your mind as you're trying to talk to the Lord? Do you ever think, God knows everything. Why am I trying to pray to him? Why am I trying to tell him something as if he doesn't know this? And he's going to do whatever he's going to do anyways. Like God knows the future. Does my prayer do anything? Does my prayer change his mind about anything? What is the point? Why am I doing this? And, And even more than that, praying is hard. Even if you do believe that your prayers have a point, It is so hard to sit down and to spend any amount of time talking to the Lord. You all know what I'm talking about here. I have to confess that even my own prayer life is not what it should be. I try to beat my kids out of bed in the morning so I can spend some time in the quiet with the Lord. But beating my kids out of bed in the morning is like entering a foot race with Usain Bolt. Like, it is not, they don't even have to try. Like, they, like I set my alarm clock for 6 a.m. Kennedy is sitting on the couch smiling at me when I walk out of the bedroom. So I say, that's fine. I'll set my clock even earlier, 5.30. I'm going to get up and spend some time with the Lord. And Rowan poops himself at 4.45 a.m. I don't know why a child would want to poop himself to wake himself up, but that is what that one-year-old does. There's just no way to beat my kids out of bed. But if anybody's job should be flexible enough for them to spend some time in prayer, it should be mine. And I don't know if you've ever felt this, but I feel this. Once the clock hits 8 or 9 a.m., I know that I need to spend a few minutes praying. But every bone in my body is telling me it's time to get to work. It's time to get some stuff done. And so instead of praying, I sit down on my computer and start hammering through my emails. Has anybody been there? Praying is hard. It's so challenging, church. And you're not alone. I'm with you. It's challenging. John Owen once said this, and this is convicting for me, and maybe it won't be for the rest of you, but I think that you guys will understand where he's getting at. He says, a minister may fill his pews, may fill his communion role, 
may fill the mouths of the public, but what the, that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. It stinks. Jack Miller says this about prayer. He says, you can tell a great deal about a person's relationship with God by listening to him or her pray. You can tell if a man or a woman is really on speaking terms with God. And so one of the questions for us this morning is, are you on speaking terms with God? As we turn our attention to the end of chapter 3, Paul is finishing the first half of this letter. There's six chapters in Ephesians, and he's finishing the first half. This first half of Ephesians has been this deep theological discourse about the church. This first half of Ephesians, he has gone into so much deep theology. It has really warmed my heart and helped me to live as a Christian. And one of the main emphases throughout the last half of this first half of the book has been that through Christ, we are united to one another. That we are one church together. No matter if we are, uh, if we are Gentile or Jew, we are united to one another. And he's taught us a lot through this. And so he's ending this first chapter before he goes into the practical half of Ephesians. And he ends with a prayer. And what he's praying is that you might know all the things that he's been speaking of, but not merely that you might know it, but that you might know it. He wants the truths of the gospel to come down to the heart of God's people. And so he leaves us with this majestic, this wonderful, this marvelous prayer. It's been preached a lot of different ways. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is one of my heroes, he was a physician in England during the first half of the 20th century. He was a a preacher at Westminster Chapel in England. And Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 17 weeks walking through this, the first half of this passage. And then I got tired of counting how many sermons he spent as he continued to go through those last two verses. Paul's prayer here not only tells us the point of prayer, but it tells us the point of all of Christianity. Because when you get prayer right, the point of prayer overlaps with the point of Christianity. And so as we look at his prayer, I think God has two things to teach us today. And the first thing that he's going to teach us is the point of prayer. And the second thing that he's going to teach us is the power of prayer. So first, the point of prayer. What is the point of prayer? Paul answers that question for us. So let's just dive into this text. You ready? You got your Bibles? Hopefully you do. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Let's just stop there for a second. Paul says, for this reason. For what reason? I think that when he says that, you have to look at what he's talking about. And last week, my brother Tyler Speck made his way over here to preach for us, and I was so proud of Tyler. He did a great job, amen? He, he really, he killed it. I was very proud of him and the, the work that he had done and the way that he served you guys. His study of the text and his explanation of it was really encouraging to me. And if you look at what he was preaching on last week, verse 13, the verse right before verse 14 says this, So I ask you not to lose heart, over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is praying this prayer because, for what reason? So that 
the hearers do not lose heart so that they don't become discouraged. He says, I don't want you to be discouraged, so I'm going to pray this for you. He says, I'm going to bow my knees before the Father. I don't want to get past that bow my knees too quickly because what he's saying is that there, he is getting into a posture to talk to the Lord. Our body posture reflects our heart posture oftentimes. And I know that it's really probably a euphemism for saying, I'm praying for you. It's just a figure of speech saying, I'm praying for you, saying, I bow my knees before the Lord for you. But it's really more than that. Because any therapist will tell you that the, the pandemic has been a very difficult time to do counseling. Why? Because you don't have all the body posture signals that you would learn, that you would glean from people, know how they're responding. And so Paul is saying that your body posture matters. And, but more than that, it matters because it reflects your heart posture. And so Paul is saying, I'm coming before the Lord for this reason. I don't want you to be discouraged. So I bow my knees before the Father. And then he goes into this thing. And this is actually a little bit technical, but I think you guys can hang. We're in Somerville, Massachusetts, after all. You can hang with the technical parts of this. He says this, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. And that's a little confusing when you first look at it. And I just want to break this little, this little verse down for us so that you can understand where he's getting at here. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, in whom every family in heaven and earth is named. This first word, every, this is the word, the Greek word, uh, pasa. And it could mean every or it can mean whole. In fact, he's used this word already several times throughout the book of Ephesians. And one time that he uses it is in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says the whole structure joined together by the ligaments. He says that the whole structure might be built up into a holy temple in the Lord. And so here, the, the translators of the ESV said every, but the translators of the King James Version said whole. And rarely do I prefer the King James Version, but this time I do. I think that he's talking about the whole family, all of us put together. We get our name from the Lord. I love how he says it because he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This word for family here is not the traditional word that you would use for family. The traditional word that you would use for family in Greek is a word called oikos. And that's not what he uses here. Instead, he uses patria. And patria is related to the Greek word for father, pater. So what he is saying, I know that all that's very technical, and I don't like going into the Greek this much uh, always. But what he is saying is, is actually a little bit of a pun. He says, I bow my knees before the pater from whom every patria in heaven and on earth is named. So he's connecting family to father. The father is the head of the family. You could almost translate that word for family as like fatherhood, but that doesn't make sense in our modern day language. So it's a different word for family that he's using. He's saying it's connected to God. So the basic emphasis of what he's saying is that every family, the whole family, all of us together have been named after the father. And so the point is, is just this, is that, we take on God's name. It's like it all becomes our surname and we're children of God. And that's what he's getting after. He's like, I pray this in front of God the Father, who all of us call Father. And then he goes into his prayer, which is this fantastic prayer. And I just want to read it for us one more time. But this is what I want you to do while I read it. I have a task for you all. I want you to count 
the number of times that he prays for the normal things that we pray about. Count the number of times that he prays for health. Count the number of times that he prays for uh, a spouse. Count the number of times he prays about money. Count the number of times that he prays about food or marriage or anything else. And then we'll, we'll sink back up afterward. Okay, you ready? Here we go. He's, he prays this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what'd you come up to? My count was exactly zero of those things. That's not what he's praying about. Paul instead decides to not focus on his external circumstances, which is what carries most of our prayers. Paul focuses on the inner person of the heart as he prays for the Ephesians. That is what he wants to pray for. And not only that, I wanted to take a look at all the times that Paul prays in the New Testament. So I did this. I looked at the entire New Testament and all the times that he talks about praying. I counted at least 42 different references of Paul praying in the New Testament. And I want to give you a small sample of what those look like. I'm not going to go through them all. But he prays that God will open the doors for, people, for him to visit people. He prays for people to be saved. He prays for patience. He prays for endurance. He prays for encouragement. He prays for unity among the people of God. He prays that God will fill his church with joy and peace through faith. He prays and thanks God for people and the faith that God is giving them. He prays for comforting and suffering. Once, he prays that he would be rescued so that his ministry can continue. And then three times, he prays that he'll be delivered from a certain thorn in the flesh, a certain suffering. And it's in response to those three that he actually gives us the answer to his prayer. He doesn't always tell us how God answered his prayer, but in this one he does. And he says, but the Lord said to me, no, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul focuses the vast majority of his prayers on the inner person. And I think we need to learn that from him. That the point of prayer is not to put a coin into the God vending machine and hope that we get the candy bar that we've selected. The point of prayer is to experience the love of Christ. The point of prayer is that your inner person might line up with the way that God sees you. In fact, that is the point of Christianity, experiencing the love of Christ. You see, the point of Christianity is not moralism. The point of Christianity is not good works. The point of Christianity is not to find church friends. It's not to find community. All of these things are great byproducts. The point of Christianity is not getting on God's side. The point of Christianity is not avoiding hell. The point of Christianity is not getting stuff from God. How many preachers have told you these lies? 
The point of Christianity is that you get God. That you get the fullness of God. And the point of Christianity is this, that you get to experience the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. It's about being fooled, filled with the fullness of God. That is the point of prayer, and that is the point of Christianity. So let's walk through his prayer. It's so rich. He says this, that according to the riches of his glory, first, let's just stop here. The glory of God is rich. This means that as he shares his glory, as he shares his love with us, it's like taking a drop out of the ocean. You'll never get enough. It'll never exhaust. It's inexhaustible. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, church, This is my prayer for you as well, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I don't know about you, but after a year and a half of the pandemic, I'm starting to feel a little inner being weakness. It can be tiresome and long and lonely, but Paul prays that God might strengthen you in your inner being. Christianity puts this huge emphasis on the inner person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart. It's who you are. Underneath the shell, underneath the the image that you put in front of people, underneath all the Instagram photos, and and the image that you put forward, underneath the, the image of the clothing that you wear, which doesn't define you, underneath the music that you listen to that does not define you, underneath the artist vibe or the engineer vibe, it's the hidden person of the heart. And Christianity puts this huge emphasis on it. Let me just ask you, are you in tune with the hidden person of your heart? Or is the noise of of this life drowning him or her out? Because Paul asks that God would give you strength in your hidden person. When you talk to that hidden person, when you think about that hidden person in your heart, of who you really are, are you killing it as much as the external person? Or does that person need a little bit of strength and a little bit of prayer? Verse 17, he continues, So that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. So he prays that your inner person might be stronger for a reason. It's not that your inner person might be stronger so that you might be better. He could have just ended right there, that your hidden person be stronger. But no, he wants your inner person to be stronger so that Christ might dwell in your hearts, so that you might understand the love of Christ for you. You know, the heart in the ancient world is not what we think about with the heart, but the heart is the center of the will, the desire. It's where your wants come from. And so what he's praying, when he asks that, when, when he prays that you might be strong enough for the hidden person of Christ, for, the, for Christ to dwell in your hearts, what he's saying is that you might be strong enough to desire him more than anything. The heart is the seedbed of your desire. And so what he wants is for Christ to live in your desires. Then you might desire him more than anything. 
And then he continues. Paul is like interrupting himself as he's going here because he's just, it seems like this prayer is just what he really wants for the Ephesians. It's like he can't even get it all out. He's like kind of breaking his chain of thought over and over again. But he says this, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And then he doesn't finish the statement. And he goes on to something else. And to know the love of Christ. He doesn't say to know what is the breadth and length and height and depth of what? What's he saying? He gets on to the next line. He says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's intentionally paradoxical. If something, if he, he's praying that you might know something that surpasses knowledge. And what he's trying to say is that this love of Christ, you never fully exhaust the knowledge that you can come to. It's one thing to know it in your head and to understand the theological truths of it, but he's saying that you might experience the truths of the love of Christ more and more in your heart. And it's just something you can never exhaust. It's taught to us when we're children. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's such a simple statement, is it not? It's something that's been taught so many times. But he's saying that the love of Christ, that you never exhaust the knowledge of it. He just wants you to know it. It surpasses an understanding, though. When I first graduated seminary, I didn't want to teach on the love of Christ very much. Because when you're in seminary, you learn all kinds of things about God. And the love of Christ feels like a child's thing. It feels like a song that you sing when you're a child. I wanted to teach on other things, like God's wrath, his sovereignty. I wanted to teach on these other doctrines. But then I come back to the word, and do you know what the word emphasizes? It says, yes, wrath, sovereignty, all these other things about God, but it's all about his love (laughs) when you come back to it. It's all about the love of Christ. The Bible makes it really clear. You cannot um, underemphasize the love of Christ. You cannot wrap your head around it. A Christianity that, that does not emphasize the love of Christ is a joyless Christianity. And a joyless Christianity is not Christianity at all. It is the Bible in Christianity name. But it is not Christianity at all. Church. God loves you. He loves you. That's the point of this prayer, that we might understand the love of Christ. I love this song that was written in 1917 called The Love of God. It's a hymn that many of you may have sang. And it has this verse that goes like this. Could we with, with ink the oceans fill And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God surpasses knowledge. So friends, stop finding your hope and your desires and your love and things that are less satisfying. Augustine said, and I've quoted this several times through the series, he says that our hearts, that, that God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Stop finding temporary joy in lesser loves, and return time and again to the love of Christ. 
Anything that you love, you're willing to give up something for it. You're willing to pay a price for it. For example, you might say that I love tacos, but there is a price that's too much for tacos, and that's right around $8, okay? If, you, if I go into some hipster place that has $8 tacos, I'm like, ah, oh, no thanks, I'm going somewhere else, all right? That's just, that's just the line. I also have a dog that I love, all right? That line is a lot higher for the dog. If the dog got hurt or something, I would pay a lot more money. And this might feel cruel and heartless, but this is just the truth. There is a line for anyone's pet, okay? Especially after you have kids, you, you learn that that line might be a little bit lower after you have kids. But there has to be a line because it is an animal. It is a pet. I'm not going to spend a million dollars trying to help my dog. Now, if my son <laughs> needed a million dollar surgery, I'd be banging on every door asking for every dollar. That's a different subject. If my wife needed that, that would happen. There's no doubt. And what the love of Christ is, is it's not saying, hey, he'd give a little bit, but not that much. You know, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. I think that's what Meatloaf says, and that might not be a song that's appropriate to reference at church. But that's not what God's saying. Because in his sovereignty, he had had this plan where he lived as a trinity. He lived with the person of Christ throughout eternity past as his son. And out of his love for us, he was willing to give the life of his own son so that we might live and be adopted as his children and experience the delight of the Trinity. Every love comes at a cost. And for God, the love came at an ultimate cost. He paid the ultimate price. He paid the price that's beyond any dollar figure that any of us can have. And that is the point of prayer, that you might experience that. You might know that. And second, I want to end with the power of prayer, which is a much shorter point that I have for us. But we might feel like our prayers are pointless. And then Paul says the exact opposite, though. Because in verse 20, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you pray to a God who is able to do more than you can ask or think? Does it feel like that as you're praying? If you knew, let me ask you this question. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that whatever you prayed for, you would get, how would that shape your prayers? Maybe you would stop just rattling off a list of complaints or obsessions and going into this loop, and maybe you would pray intentionally for things that you knew would be good for you. Because that is what it says here, is that God is able to do far more than what we can even ask or think. And we've all seen Aladdin enough to know that you've got to be careful what you ask for. But friends, God is not a genie. He's a father. And what he does, he actually invites us to ask boldly. Because he's a father, he won't give us a stone when we ask for bread. 
He's not going to give us the answer to a prayer that we want if it's bad for us. If you knew everything that God knows, you would answer your prayers in the exact same way that God always does. Because God knows what is best for you. But he still invites us to ask boldly. To come before him because he is able to do far more than we could ask or dream. Your small prayers indicate a small view of God. Small prayers indicate a small view of God. But when your view of God becomes larger, you start asking bigger things. So let me ask you a few questions. Which is a bigger prayer? For God to make me a millionaire or for God to give me contentment with what I have? I could be lucky and become a millionaire. Could walk in and buy a lotto ticket. Happen to win. Luck. But I'm not going to become content without God. Which is a bigger prayer? That God would give me a spouse? Or that he would give me patience to wait? Lots of people get married. But you're not going to get patience without God. Which is a bigger prayer? That God would cure my illness? Or that he would give me joy in the midst of suffering. The body's made to be, the body's made to overcome illness. But joy in the midst of suffering, that's a work of the Lord. Church, here's the message. And it's a goldmine that you have to come to each and every day as you pray, as you seek the Lord. God loves you. And your prayers are too small because you don't understand the extent to which he loves you. But if you meditate on that truth day and night, each and every day, you'll never come to the bottom of that gold mine. There will be something new for you each and every day as you go there. God is not withholding his love. His love's been fully displayed arms wide open on the cross, sending his son to bear the penalty for sin that you and I deserve, the ultimate cost, so that we might have life with him eternally. Do you pray like God loves you, or do you pray like God's disappointed in you? When you go to him, is there kind of like a sense of, oh, he's really disappointed in me? You don't understand your, your status of being in Christ. Because when you trust in Christ, you're like a child of God. He's not disappointed in you. You're coming to him as Jesus would come to him. And when you come to God, does he feel distant from you? Or is he near? Again, he's as near to you as he is to Christ. Because you were hidden in his son's work for you. Jesus takes you to the Father. And you're given fellowship with him. Friends, God is not disappointed and he's not distant. And that's actually the point of the meal that we celebrate every week. When we take this communion meal, what we're being reminded is that God is satisfied 
in what Christ has done. That the blood of Christ and the body of Christ being broken and shed for us is what satisfies God. So therefore, he's not disappointed in me. Not only that, but we remember with the body and blood of Christ that he is near to us. We consume it. That he is nearer now than he was before we became Christians. And that he is right here with us at all times. And so, as we enjoy this meal together, if you are a believer, I encourage you to participate in this meal. We have some communion packets in the back. Be reminded that God is not disappointed in you. He is not discouraged in you. He is not distant from you, but he is near and he is loving. Let's stand as we prepare to receive this meal. Father, as we come to this sacred meal, we pray that you will be near to us, that we will not sense a a feeling of disappointment in you, uh, from you, but that we will know that You're proud to call us children. And God, that you will be near. God, we pray for those who have not tasted and seen that you are good, who have not sensed your love and been made known to it. And God, we pray for all the conversations that we should be having after this about how does this square up with God's love and how do I make sense of this in light of God's love. God, I pray that You make our community rich and help us to walk with one another through our suffering and that you give us joy, contentment, peace, and patience. We ask these things because Jesus has paid our penalty and is the mediator for us. Amen.